0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Waisper Chen.
2: I'm Bradley Calhoun.
0: And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started
3: with our first link.
0: First link.
3: All right. From the Guardian, a book thief who stole more than 1,000 manuscripts wanted to cherish them
0: before anyone else. Mm. That's like that weird (laughs) supervillain thing of like, only I can have it, but I don't want anyone (laughs) else to see it. Kind of, but even more romantic,
3: if you can believe that. And I mean romantic in the literary kind of tragic, pathetic sense, not necessarily (laughs) like
0: meet-cute way. He wasn't making sweet love to those manuscripts (laughs) he was just No, no.
3: Mm -mm. It's somehow a little bit sadder than that. Okay, (laughs) So the former publishing employee who stole manuscripts of books by Margaret Atwood, Sally Rooney, and Ian McEwen has said he had a, quote, burning desire to feel like he was a publishing professional and had no intention of leaking the books that he stole. (laughs) But Filippo Bernardini did plead guilty to one count of wire fraud in New York in January. Hmm. And okay, to be fair, he worked in the biz. like He was a rights coordinator in London for Simon & Schuster, which, by the way, has not been implicated in Hmm. any of his crimes. (laughs) In court papers published last week, Bernardini said he never leaked the manuscripts, but he just wanted to keep them, quote, closely to my chest and be one of the fewest to cherish them before (laughs) anyone else, before they... (laughs) Ended up in bookshops. <laughs> Weird.
2: I love this band first.
0: Right. <laughs> yes. Before they were cool. <laughs>
3: <laughs> kind of. Yeah. I mean, this is in his statement. You guys are completely on the nose. In his statement, he felt, quote, a special and unique connection with the author, almost like I was the editor of that book oh, when wow. reading some of the manuscripts. So beginning in August 2016 and then continuing. Up to his arrest in New York in January 2022, Bernardini impersonated hundreds of people in the world of publishing by sending emails from fake accounts. Wow. Quote, I wrote in the style and using the language that my former colleagues had used. When that request was successful from that moment on, this behavior became a compulsive behavior. And, you know, his lawyer wrote in a sentencing submission that Bernardini grew up as a lonely, bullied gay child in a conservative part of Italy and was comforted by books. And she argued that he had suffered professional and reputational ruin and that being effectively banned from the publishing industry was particularly painful for him because of his desire to feel like an industry insider. So he will be sentenced on the 5th of April Honestly, I hope he sells the rights to his story because
0: what a book that's going to make. Yeah, and he can be the first to read it. He'll know exactly how it is. Next link. Next Next link.
1: link. Well, speaking of theft, this article comes to us from businessinsider.com. It's titled Grand Theft TikTok. Ooh, Mm. wait. (laughs) Yeah. So Bria Jenkins was enjoying an evening at home last November, watching television with her kids and waiting for a Domino's delivery. (laughs) But when she opened the door to grab the pizza from the delivery driver, she got a serious shock. There was broken glass strewn on the ground, and her 2013 Kia Optima was gone, stolen (gasps) from right in front of her house. Oh, no. Yeah, she said, I started freaking out. I was like, am I dreaming? (laughs) Patty LeBeau Chorn experienced a similar nightmare one morning last August. She had parked her 2015 Kia Sorento while volunteering at her temple in Los Angeles. But when she went to drive home, she couldn't find it anywhere. Shorn and Jenkins are just two victims of an unprecedented surge in car thefts that has swept across U.S. cities in the past two years. In Milwaukee, car thefts have doubled since 2020. In St. Louis, they spiked 157% from the second half of 2021 to the second half of 2022. Dang! Other major metros across the country, New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles, have seen similar increases. The cause of this wild car theft spree? A viral TikTok. Yep. Ugh. The Kia challenge video, which first appeared in 2021 and regained popularity in July 2022, showed how to easily hijack certain models using only a USB cord. Ah. <gasps> Only a USB.
3: Well, okay. That feels a little bit like uh, shame on you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yes. So while the video was quickly taken down by TikTok, each time it resurfaced, the damage was done. Hmm. 70% of the cars stolen in Milwaukee last year and 50% of the cars stolen in Chicago this year were from the two South Korean manufacturers. The situation has become so critical that two major auto insurance companies, State Farm and Progressive, have stopped insuring vulnerable Kia and Hyundai models.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah, that's a big deal when the insurance companies are like, nope. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Dozens of class action lawsuits filed around the country are attempting to force the manufacturers to either issue a recall or fix the car's vulnerability. The trend has become not just a financial burden for consumers and a legal nightmare for Kia and Hyundai, but has spotlighted what happens when a business cuts corners. It's often Uh the people least responsible who bear the burden. Mm. So the TikTok video that sparked the challenge, a how-to reportedly created by user Robbie Ray with three Ys, exposed (laughs) a security flaw in Kia models from 2011 to 2021 and Hyundai models from 2015 to 2021. The cars from that time don't have electric immobilizers, a safety device that uses a unique chip in the key fob. Cars with this tech won't start unless they recognize the correct key, making them far more difficult to hotwire. Without that system, anyone could unscrew the steering column in the older Kias and Hyundais and insert a USB into the ignition before driving away. While there's no federal database of thefts by specific model, the numbers in large cities are staggering. In Seattle, thefts of Kias and Hyundais increased by 363% and 503%, respectively, between 2021 and 2022.
3: That's insanity.
1: (laughs) Yeah. In Chicago, 1,000 Kias were stolen in October alone. Oh my god. (laughs) Yeah. And in Portland, Oregon, the number of stolen Kias increased by 916%, and Hyundai thefts jumped by 768%.
0: The secret's out, man. I mean, that's the thing. If you're a car thief and you know you're gonna steal something, and you've just gotten the answer to this one is extra easy, of course you're Mm -hmm. gonna focus on those models.
2: Well, I think, too, what's also increased it is people who weren't gonna steal, just teenagers who are just being teenagers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you
1: know, gotta go viral for that TikTok challenge. That's right, that's right. Exactly. In response to the crime wave, Kia added immobilizers to their 2022 models, and Hyundai added them to cars built since November 2021. So far, there's been no recall on the already compromised models, Though Kia and Hyundai both noted in statements to Insider that they're providing steering wheel locks to affected car owners through some police departments. <laughs> mm.
2: in... Wait, 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 wait. We've gone back in time.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah the club, man. Just... Like the big the red thing. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> but many people have questioned why the companies didn't have such a standard feature in their cars in the first place. In 2015, 96% of vehicles from other manufacturers had immobilizers, but only 26% of Kia and Hyundai cars did. Ugh. While the U.S. does not mandate the tech, electronic immobilizers have been common since the late 1990s when the European Union mandated them for all new cars sold there. Oh. Neither Kia or Hyundai have explained why their vehicles didn't have the safety feature.
0: They said, we don't care about Europe, we're not selling there.
1: So. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> Davison, the Seattle city attorney, acknowledged TikTok's role in the theft spree, but placed the underlying blame on the car companies themselves. Yeah. What really has happened is that Kia and Hyundai chose to cut corners in cost in their least expensive models in a period of years. Davison is one of the lawyers who has filed a class action suit against the manufacturers. One lawyer estimated several dozen such lawsuits existed across the country. Mm. Jonathan Michaels, a lawyer at the MLG Attorneys at Law in California who is representing Labou said his firm has been watching the situation unfold since the Kia Challenge took off in the middle of last year. He said, we thought that Kia or Hyundai might take some type of corrective action to prevent the harm. We were surprised when they didn't. <laughs>
2: and thrilled because we're attorneys. Yeah, sure. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so it's not just insurance that's becoming a problem. Andrea Amico, the founder and CEO of Privacy for Cars, a company that addresses automotive data privacy issues, says other companies are taking steps to avoid risk. There are garages that are refusing to have these vehicles in their garage because they're concerned about the liability if the car is stolen. Mm. And if you cannot insure your car and cannot park, this has an immediate impact on what the Mm. asset is worth. Yep. As in, you know, about zero. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and just to pause, like as far as I can tell, you don't even need a phone or anything like that attached mm-hmm. to plug in. Like it's literally just the USB cord, which itself is nonsense. Yeah.
0: Anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think we can agree. The problem is not TikTok or car manufacturers. It's teenagers. We need to just lock up everyone from like age 12 to 18 and never, you know, let their brains fully develop.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, the only people that can stop bad people with USB cords is good people. (laughs) 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 Next link. Next link. link.
2: Well, we'll stay on the idea of thievery here. And this is from Popular Mechanics. A man is suing the FBI over D.B. Cooper's tie. The result could solve the case. So on November the 24th, 1971, a Boeing 727 was hijacked during a flight from Portland to Seattle. Described as a white man in his 40s with brown eyes, wearing a black suit or brown suit, white shirt, thin black tie, carrying briefcase and a brown paper bag. He told the flight attendant he was armed with a bomb, demanded 200k in cash, and he also requested four parachutes. They landed in Seattle And he let out all the passengers, except for the crew, who were to fly him to Mexico City. But they didn't get that far. About 30 minutes after taking off from the flight, he jumped out into the night somewhere over southwest Washington, never to be found. They did find a small portion of the ransom money on the banks of the Colorado River. And J. Edgar Hoover, then the FBI director, even approved the use of an SR-71 Blackbird to retrace and photograph the flight path, but Mm -hmm. to no avail. I'm sure that cost more than the ransom.
0: Oh, sure. But it's like the TikTok challenge of the 70s. You don't want him to get away with it because then everyone knows you can pull it off. So,
2: yep. And so there are countless theories as to who he was, what happened to him. Did he survive the jump? Uh, or, you know, maybe the parachutes that were packed by the FBI weren't packed so well.
0: I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's <that's> quite possible. <laughs>
2: Anywho, the FBI does have some physical evidence they grabbed from the plane. like some cigarette butts, a tie clip that they just kind of stuffed away. Hmm. Over the years, people have tried to do testing on it. But there's an amateur sleuth, Eric Ullis. He believes the FBI is blocking any possible breakthroughs related to the case. So he's suing them to make sure the important details are not lost. Yeah. For whatever reason, the FBI is blocking investigations of Cooper's tie. So Ulysses has no choice but to file the federal lawsuit under the Freedom of Information Act.
0: I mean, that that is suspicious. Like, why wouldn't they right. want you to see it? I, I don't know. I, I'm. <laughs> Anytime the FBI is hiding something, I'm like, all right, we clearly we know who it was, and it was somebody scandalous, and we don't want to admit that. You know, JFK. <laughs> who went. are you protecting?
2: <laughs> right, because they have granted private parties in the past, mm-hmm. and they've tested DNA from the front of it. But the front of it is just fibers on the, mm. on the front, and there's some spit. I think that they tried to grab nothing off of there, but there's a small metal spindle. It was a clip-on tie that. Ulis thinks they can grab DNA off of, but again, they won't let them have it for whatever reason. Uh. So that helps with the conspiracy theories and just adds more fuel to the fire.
0: So does he have a theory or is he just like, I need to know. No, he just
2: wants to grab the DNA. He just says there's ways now that we have that we can grab DNA off of metal, which is a lot more accurate than we did the last time y'all let this thing be tested. So let me do that. And they were like, sorry, you'll have to sue us for it. (laughs) So hopefully if he wins the court case, he can find DNA and reverse. Reverse engineer it. Find the families, nephews, nieces, you know. Check out how well the family's living these days.
0: (laughs) Right, 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 right. (laughs) (laughs) Did
2: you guys get a bigger house in the 1970s? No, no, (laughs) no. Next link. Next Next link.
0: All right. Well, we're definitely going to depart from thievery now, unless you're talking about maybe (laughs) evolutionary thievery. I don't know. Anyway, this next article (laughs) is from the BBC, and it's called, Why Don't Humans Have Fur? And Hmm. the short answer is that, well, actually, we do. It's just that most... Yeah, some do. Yeah, yeah, well, some people, for sure. (laughs) But even those of us who are relatively hairless do actually have a full, quote, coat of fur. It's just that most of the hair follicles on our bodies produce what's known as vellus hair, which is short and delicate. But the density of our hair follicles is still pretty equivalent to most other mammals, with the Hmm. average person having around 5 million follicles across the surface of their body. We should also clarify up front that from a scientific standpoint, there is no such thing as fur. It's all just different types of hair. And I actually had to dig a little deeper into this because I had been told that for people with dog allergies, poodles and a couple other breeds are considered hypoallergenic specifically because they have hair instead of fur. Mm. But. No, it turns out that while you are less likely to be allergic to poodles than other breeds, it's not a hair versus fur thing. It's more like there's a spectrum of different types of hair follicles that all release different amounts of dander and poodles just happen to be on the far end of it. Fun fact. Humans also release a tiny amount of dander, and it is actually possible to be allergic to human dander as well. Oh, no. (laughs) It would be a pretty awful life, I think, if that were the case. (laughs) But all that aside, the question still remains, when and why did human hair follicles shift away from thick, uniform coats into this weird divided situation we have going on now, where our bodies are mostly hairless, but groin and armpit hair is thicker and medium length, and then also the follicles on our heads grow thick and long, Because aside from why we lost our fur, it's actually pretty unusual in the animal kingdom to have three radically different types of hair on the same individual. Hmm. And spoiler alert, there is no consensus on the answer to this question. But of the many plausible theories, some scientists are starting to think that probably several of them are actually true. And those competing pressures may be how we ended up with such a weird mashup of hair types. So going back to the very beginning, the earliest theory comes from Darwin himself, who proposed that it was simple sexual selection. Early humans found less hair to be more attractive, and over time it got weeded out of the gene pool. And that's been pretty thoroughly dismissed as an insufficient answer, if not a completely wrong one. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how sexy you are if you can't survive the winter. Hmm. And so some of the folks who came after Darwin pointed toward the warm climate of Africa, where humans first emerged, and said, ah, look, we wouldn't need the fur to keep warm there, so that's why we lost it. Except... All the other animals on the African savanna do still have hair. So simply living in a warm climate can't be the answer either. Hmm. So then we get to what's known as the savanna hypothesis, which is itself divided into two camps. The first camp says that during the Pleistocene, Homo erectus shifted to persistence hunting, which means chasing your prey at a slow but steady pace until it's exhausted. And this sort of endurance movement would require them to burn off heat faster than their prey, so the body hair would have become not just something they didn't really need, but a full-on liability. And one of the big pieces of evidence for this theory is that genetically, hair follicles and sweat glands are related. So it's not just that we lost our hair, but that we gained the ability to sweat at the same time. Meanwhile, scientists on the other side of the Savannah hypothesis believe that the body temperature regulation is an effect rather than a cause, And they go back to the fact that, like we said, most other animals in Africa do still have hair, which they believe is because hair protects you from solar radiation. So for them, the most important change in the genetic record is not the appearance of sweat glands, but of melanin, which darkens the bare skin to protect it from burning. And they say this coincides with the moment when humans first started to walk upright, because that would put most of the sun's rays on the scalp instead of the body, and thus that explains why the hair on our heads is different from the rest. And neither of these two sides really disputes what the other is saying. They're just sort of disagreeing on what order everything happened Mm. in. Because it might be that we started to walk upright, which meant we didn't need the fur, which meant we could shift to sweating and skin pigment. Or it could be that we needed to sweat for hunting, so we lost the fur, which meant we had to stand upright in order to protect our bodies from getting burned. But in either scenario, the Savannah hypothesis locks us in to being hairless somewhere between one and a half to two million years ago. But... Then there are scientists like Mark Pagal of the University of Reading who says the entire savanna hypothesis is insane. Oh, and again no. yes, <laughs> Those are big words. And again a lot of his argument comes down to body temperature as well but in the other direction. Pagal says that when you look at body heat over a 24-hour period, we lose most of our body heat at night and the benefits of being able to cool ourselves during a hunt could never outweigh the costs of losing so much extra heat while we sleep. What's more, he says, the spread of populations out of Africa would have happened after the so-called savanna hypothesis. And if body temperature is such a key factor in whether we have fur, then that means early humans would have had to have spent tens of thousands of years in cold climates without ever re-evolving full-body hair back again. And that seems unlikely. Instead, Pagal believes that, like a lot of sudden evolutionary changes, The loss of fur was a reaction to disease. Mm. He says there's a whole family of ectoparasites that live on the skin of apes and that all of them are evolved to lay their eggs in thick fur. So Mm. whether it was a general problem that early humans were affected by, or perhaps one particularly devastating parasite came along at some point in history. Either way, having less fur at that time would mean greater health and survival. Pagal's theory is also supported, he says, by the fact that human lice, which live in head hair and clothing but never on fur, only appear in the fossil record a few thousand years ago. Uh Ah ha Taking that into account, Pagal thinks that we actually kept a full coat of fur for way longer than most people believe, like all the way up until just a few thousand years ago. What's more, that fur coat might be poised to come back at any moment because (gasps) a different group of scientists recently discovered that humans do actually still have the genes for a full coat of fur. The genes just aren't turned on through epigenetics. So this actually supports Pagal's theory as well, because it means that hairlessness was something that kind of came on really quickly. We didn't have time to get the genes out. We just sort of had to turn them off. And by the way, it also suggests that we might be able to develop drugs or therapies that could turn those genes back on. Either for the treatment of baldness or, you know, to just give yourself a glorious fur coat and save on the heating bill.
3: (laughs) Selective turn on, not just like we go full Sasquatch after popping. a That's right. That's right. Well, and I
0: mean, it would be so cool if you did have the ability to say, like, I want to grow hair, but only on my head or only whatever, because then you could do like henna tattoos, but with the paste that makes you grow hair. (laughs) 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 The possibilities are humorous. (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's a new TikTok challenge. Where do you grow hair? You you slip it into somebody's body lotion and then. Uh, Pranking people by getting them to grow hair. You know what? I could be in favor of that. All of a sudden, pranking culture is looking pretty good now, isn't it? (laughs) Next link next link link. okay well we'll stick with the
3: evolutionary beat but we're gonna go way back with rutgers the state university of new jersey this is where the article appears on their website rutgers today and guess what they have identified a substance that may have sparked life on earth huh so they've been doing research to provide clues to extraterrestrial life. And they're dedicated to pinpointing the primordial origins of metabolism. And they have identified part of a protein that could provide scientists clues to detecting planets on the verge of producing life. So, according to Nanda, a professor of biochemistry and molecular biology, scientists believe that sometime between 3.5 and 3.8 billion years ago, there was a tipping point, something that kickstarted the change from prebiotic chemistry, which is molecules before life, to living biological systems. And the scientists believe the change was sparked by a few precursor proteins that performed key steps in an ancient metabolic reaction, and they think they have found one of these pioneer peptides. Hmm. The scientists conducting the study are part of a Rutgers-led team called Evolution of Nanomachines in Geospheres and Microbial Ancestors, which has the delightful acronym of ENIGMA. So And that's part of the astrobiology program at NASA. And the researchers are seeking to understand how proteins evolved to become the predominant catalyst of life on Earth. So when we're scouring the universe with telescopes and probes for signs of past, present, or emerging life, these peptides, like this pioneer peptide we're talking about here, could become the latest biosignature used by NASA to detect planets on the verge of producing life. So the reasoning of these researchers kind of goes like this. An original instigating chemical would need to be simple enough to be able to assemble spontaneously in a prebiotic soup but it would have to be sufficiently chemically active to possess the potential to take energy from the environment in order to drive a biochemical process. So they did sequences and sequences of experiments, and they concluded their best candidate was a peptide made of 13 amino acids and binds two nickel ions. And Nickel, their reasoning, was an abundant metal in early oceans. So when bound to the peptide, the nickel atoms become these potent catalysts, and they start producing hydrogen gas. And hydrogen, according to the researcher's rationale, was also more abundant on early Earth and would have been a critical source of energy to power metabolism. So Hmm. this is important because while there are a lot of theories about the origins of life, there are very few actual laboratory tests of these ideas. And this work shows that not only are simple protein metabolic enzymes possible, but they are very stable and very active, which makes them a plausible starting point for life. Now, here is kind of where the punchline comes in. <laughs> Rutgers scientists say that the most likely chemical candidate that we've been talking about, this, you know, pioneer peptide, well, they're calling it Nickelback. Not because it has anything no. to do with the Canadian <laughs> rock band. I know, I know. But because <laughs> it's backbone nitrogen atom bonds to critical nickel atoms. So a peptide is a constituent of a protein made up of a few elemental building blocks known as amino acids. You know, they dropped this Nickelback thing in the second paragraph, but I knew I was going to lose you all if I if, if I mentioned <laughs> it too early. So, Cool Protein, somewhat tragic name, even though it's not in any way associated. And to be fair, okay, Nickelback is a very commercially successful band, and I'm not going to be the snob who says anyone who is commercially successful automatically sucks because I know Bradley would object to that. <laughs>
2: right? Well, they're. They're just one of those bands that's easy to hate. Yeah. yeah. uh, But
3: hey, you know, it's like getting one of those Gary Larson insects named after you,
0: even obliquely,
3: mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's street cred right
0: there. They can be like, we're a peptide, baby. (laughs) Street cred by way of Rutgers. Right.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link.
1: This article comes to us from Nautilus.com. It's titled The Explosive Chemist Who Invented Smokeless Gunpowder. Oh, hmm. wait, huh? Yeah, so James Dewar, the creator of Cordite, likely helped win World War I, but why oh. never a Nobel Prize?
0: Yeah, why not, man? Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm indignant. <laughs> yeah, I never
1: knew about this guy before, but now I'm upset that That's he didn't right. get what he deserved. That's right, right. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to dig into that story. So, Sir Humphrey Davy once nearly killed himself when he inhaled carbon monoxide to see what the effects would be. Michael?
2: (laughs) 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 Gotta love early science. Yep. Oh yeah. We
1: got a couple more coming. So Michael Faraday almost blew his hand off while investigating the properties of nitrogen trichloride. John Tyndall was drawn to death-defying feats of mountaineering in the Alps because he wanted to understand how glaciers worked. Risking their necks in the name of knowledge, all three of these scientists were once resident professors at the Royal Institution in Mayfair, living in rooms on the second floor, where the author Thomas Hodginson now works as a writer for the London Institute for Mathematical Scientists. But perhaps the bravest of the building's 19th century professors was the one most often overlooked. His name was Sir James Dewar. He died a century ago this month. And as well as being the inventor of the thermos flask, he was once credited with having won World War I. That claim takes some unpacking. The short version is that Dewar invented cordite, a smokeless replacement for gunpowder used by British soldiers in the trenches. Yet the story is a bit more complicated. Since the 8th century AD, the world's number one low explosive, the kind you put in guns as opposed to using it to blow things up, had been gunpowder. This was invented by Chinese mystics searching for the elixir of life. Hmm. But there were problems with gunpowder. One was that it gave off a puff of smoke, which made it easy for your enemy to work out where you were and fire back. Ah. New discoveries in the 19th century kicked off a quest for a smokeless powder, which would give any army a crucial advantage in a conflict. In 1888, the British government set up a group called the Explosives Committee to ensure the British led the field. Its head was Sir Frederick Abel. Its chief investigator was James Dewar. A short, stocky, working-class Scot. he had ruined his digestion in his early career while researching gout, leaving him permanently dyspeptic. He would not tolerate any familiarity from employees. Huh. As one recalled, he was prone to frequent petulant outbursts. His biographer, John Rawlinson, described Dewar as a man of few friends and many enemies. (laughs) Yet, whatever else you might want to say about the Scot, he was a brilliant experimental scientist who pursued discovery with little concern for his own welfare. One of his abiding interests was the liquefaction of gases, freezing them to temperatures approaching absolute zero to study their changing properties under those conditions. This was notwithstanding the fact that some gases, such as ethylene, become extremely volatile and can explode. Once, when asked about these risks, Dewar simply replied that they were impossible to avoid. (laughs) Pretty metal, I guess. Yeah, Yeah. sorry not sorry
0: is basically. (laughs) Yeah.
1: In 1886, in the basement at the Royal Institution, he suffered an ethylene explosion that left him incapacitated for months. Nevertheless, two years later, when he was asked to join the explosives committee in the hunt for a smokeless powder, he didn't hesitate. Alfred Nobel, now best remembered for the prestigious prizes he set up, was a successful chemist who invented dynamite. When Dewar got in touch, the Swede revealed to his companion that he was now working on a promising smokeless powder composed of camphor, nitroglycerin, and soluble nitrocellulose, which he was calling ballistite. However, the formula wasn't perfect. Dewar took it, tried it, and found it unreliable. He suggested a fix, which Nobel chose not to act on, so Dewar began his own experiments. The received wisdom was that if you used an insoluble form of nitrocellulose, it made the compound too unstable. However, Dewar had the guts to doubt this. He discovered that the opposite was true, and this proved the crucial missing ingredient. He and Abel named it cordite and took out a patent of their own. Nobel was incensed. He had had no idea (laughs) that the explosives committee might develop a rival to his ballistite. When he learned the British army would favor Cordite, he sued. In court, the tempestuous doer nearly blew his top. He and (laughs) Abel had been accused of greed by members of the public in the papers. According to the Times Daily Reports of Proceedings, the Scot replied to questions with something approaching to warmth, which is a lovely 19th century British understatement. (laughs) Nevertheless, Nobel lost the case, the appeal that followed, and the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom hearing. When you look at Nobel's patent for ballistite, which can be viewed at the British Library, it stipulates the use of nitrated cellulose of the well-known soluble kind. Dewar's patent prescribes varieties of nitrocellulose, which are not of the kinds usually known as soluble. Hmm. Nobel had to pay the full cost of the court cases. And although his ballistite was adopted by the Swedish and Italian armies, among others, he felt sickened by their betrayal. (laughs) <laughs> no one could be trusted, he declared, save dogs whom we feed with the flesh of others and worms whom we feed with our own. Oh, oh wow. much? very grim yes. and morbid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Nobel died in 1896. As for Dewar, the work on Cordite restored his mojo. He returned <laughs> to liquefaction, which involved him engineering a way of keeping gases cold and liquid and led to his invention of the thermos flask. In 1898, he became the first person to liquefy hydrogen. No surprise, then, that he was knighted in 1904, and Dewar won about every prize going for experimental science. The Davy Medal, the Copley Medal, the Franklin Medal. The one that always eluded him was the Nobel.
0: I mean, what I'm hearing is Nobel was incredibly petty. Like, <laughs> that's, that's what I've learned today. Yeah.
2: And also the takeaway too, especially of scientists, and it's happening now. Just the pursuit of solving something without getting the repercussions of what that solve might actually create.
0: Mm-hmm. Too, yeah, right? yeah, yeah.
2: Like cordite, great, yay, you made a thing, but that cordite also killed a lot of people. But that's science, though, you know.
3: Yeah, like does the Nobel Prize? They have an ethics award,
0: right? But it's like a separate thing. It's not like applicable right? to all of their awards. They just have their it's, own. It's like the audio awards at the Oscars. They do them, but they keep them <laughs> off camera. It's sort of a side. Right. You know? they're, they're a Hyatt
2: Regency. <laughs> right, right, right.
0: right.
1: <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link.
0: All right. Well, I've got a short but cute one here at the end from Live Science called. Elementary schoolers prove EpiPens become toxic in space, something NASA never knew. Yay, kids! Yeah. And the title's admittedly a little clickbaity in the sense that it's acting like, and the whole article's acting like, really, that these kids proved NASA wrong or were somehow (laughs) underdogs who were sticking it to the man. In reality, NASA runs a global STEM program specifically for elementary students called Cubes in Space where every summer, NASA sends several rockets up to suborbital heights, basically just outside the atmosphere, and these rockets are filled with little individual cubes that each contain an experiment proposed by a student group.
2: Oh, how awesome is that? Oh, yeah, it's very cool.
0: And basically, the question these kids get asked is, what do you want to send into space and why, (laughs) right? So the students from St. Brother Andre School in Ottawa said, we want to send an EpiPen into space. Which is kind of fascinating from a generational standpoint. You know, yeah. how an EpiPen is such a common item for kids yep. these days. Well, most of the folks at NASA probably come from a time where they weren't nearly as common. And also, to be an astronaut, you really have to be in peak physical condition. So the idea of sending medicines up into space just oh, hasn't yeah. been something they've thought a lot about yet beyond the basic antibiotics and things. But space tourism is definitely coming, which means people with chronic conditions will eventually be going up, too. And it turns out that when you expose epinephrine to even a little bit of cosmic radiation, it starts to decompose. And one of the byproducts of that chemical reaction is benzoic acid, which is, and I quote, extremely poisonous. Oh, no. Now, you actually can have small amounts of benzoic acid. It occurs naturally in foods like cranberries, plums and cinnamon and is commonly used as a preservative in processed food. And I think it's also worth pointing out that while the quantity of benzoic acid produced by a decomposing EpiPen is enough to be very toxic, that realistically just means you're going to die a little quicker. Since if you're at the point of using an EpiPen in space, you're already in pretty bad shape. (laughs) But if people are going to keep going into space, then we're going to need EpiPens in space. So now the students from St. Brother Andre are designing a capsule that space bound EpiPens could travel in that would block all cosmic radiation and protect them up to the point of need. They hope to have it ready by this June, when they will travel to the Langley Research Center in Virginia to present their findings to NASA and hopefully send it up on the next Cubes in Space rocket to see if it works. Which all is very cool. I mean, kids doing science. And I really like this outsourcing of ideas to kids because I think kids are able to think outside the box more than older adults are. I also like that they
3: ask the kids to justify why they want to send up a particular thing. And I'm dying to read the responses. Like, what did all kids everywhere submit?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You got to imagine, like, there should be an outtakes of, like, (laughs) (laughs) these are the greatest suggestions that we're definitely not going to do. but. (laughs) All right, well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Here's What Dinosaurs Really Looked Like, Why Is the Ocean So Salty, and Science for a Sushi Restaurant. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
2: I'm Waisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.